And now, and now, the best of Pete Price. The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7. Hello, Mike. Hello. Yes, Mike. Okay. Yes, thank you. What can we do for you, sir? Uh, you told me to bring back to on some progress that uh, I was talking to. Oh, are you, are you the gentleman that rang in a, and had no idea of getting a job and then we put you in touch with somebody? That's it, yeah. yeah. Right. put me into contact with Bob and Bob told me to bring him back the next day. Right. His office. Uh, I rang back, I went over to the office, had a meeting with him and uh, they helped me get me badge for my taxis. So um, I'm now working as we speak now on the taxis. No! Already? So, yeah. Wow, right. that's fantastic. So you... Well, that's incredible. You must feel amazing over that. Well, I, I was I was getting nowhere with jobs, obviously, Pete, because, uh, I mean, I've, I haven't lied to nobody when I go for the job. I do tell them that I've got a criminal record. Mike, let me stop you there. Tell us a story. And, you know, don't you don't have to tell us all the details, but tell us a story because that might help people out there listening. So tell us your story. I've been to prison twice, uh, two convictions for drugs. Uh, I know it's in the past and I know what I've done was wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know what I mean? It's right what I've done, but it's wrong what I've done. I went down the wrong road. Uh, I've got out of prison about three years ago now, uh, and I've been trying to get a job. I've been hitting walls everywhere I go, with no one, no one wanting to give me a chance. And I listened on your radio station when you had Bob, Bob Cox in from the CIB. Mm-hmm. I did uh, ring up the show. Bob gave me the phone number to ring back. The next day, the office. First thing, the next day, nine o'clock in the morning, I rang up this uh, his office. He had me appointments that afternoon to go and meet him personally. Uh, so I went and met him personally. And from then, it took at least a week for me to get uh, on the board, sit the board. Uh, Bob got me a nice letter. And uh, can I mention the solicitor's name that he uses? Yeah, sure. It's John Wheats from Roberts Moore, Nicholas and Jones mm-hmm. in Birkenhead. He reuses. Mr. Wheat came with me personally, sat down on the board, and he stressed out that this was my only chance for me to have a job. And the board were perfect, and uh, they said that they're willing to give me a chance. And I've been on the taxis now for two, three weeks, and I'm doing very good. How do you feel working again? Excellent. Great, because I've got a six-year-old son. I can provide for him now mm-hmm. without going down the wrong road and not looking behind me back and when my door's going to get boosted in or anything now, Pete. Oh, well, I'm so, so pleased. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. Not only is there a, a major problems out there trying to get jobs because people say there aren't any jobs and yet you have had a criminal record, had problems, and you have got a job. Well, only through your radio station, I wouldn't have got that help, you see, Pete. And listening to the, it's funny just that I switched that on. Though they say that things happen for a reason, and I listened to the radio station that night, and that was that's what it was about, and it was good. Do you know what I mean? It, I went from from good to good, and it progressed all the way through. Then I'm so pleased for you, Mike. I am so so pleased for you, mate. Excellent. Thanks very much, Peter, for your help and air bumps and the solicitors as well, Mr. Weeks. Mike, thank you for joining us. That's that's incredible. See. There is light at the end of the tunnel. That is great. 
Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, I am a name dropper, uh, but I've met my match. Tell you about that in a second. Claire Sweeney is on tour with a wonderful, wonderful show, and she persuaded one of the top MDs in the country to leave London. He doesn't leave London. I had the privilege of meeting him last week for the first time ever, and you know when you gel with someone and you think, he's going to be your friend for life? Well, he certainly is. He's a nice man. He's a talented man. He has an incredible reputation in the business, and his name is Jim. That's J-A-E, Alexander. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I love the fact you remember the way I spell my name. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I, 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 tell them why I said that, though. Tell them about Carol Channing. Well, it's very. this is the name-dropping thing. You see, we were, we were travelling in a car with Claire, and uh, years ago I was conducting a concert at the, the London Palladium. Uh, it was Hello, Dolly, and starring all different dollies all night with Cheetah Rivera in it and Kay Ballard and Dorothy Lamour. And one of the dollies, and the famous dolly, of course, was Carol Channing. And uh, when she met me, um, she'd obviously, there were two conductors. There was a Broadway conductor, which is Donald Pippin, and myself. Well, I was doing the English side of things and setting it all up here. And she'd obviously learned my name on the plane coming across from New York and realized I didn't spell it J-Y, but I spelled it differently. So she meets me and she goes, J. Alexander. J-A-E. Now that's a very nice name. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you remember how to spell it. <laughs> Jay, I really wanted you to come on. We do this feature called My Story, and it's a fascinating insight into people who are interesting. And what I found interesting about you was, apart from the fact you're a very nice person, is your career. How does somebody become... Um, an MD. How does somebody become a musical director from... I mean, tell us the story of how you got to where you are. Well, a, a long time ago, I mean, I started, I started off as a pianist. Well, many years before that, I was playing the organ in the club, workingmen's clubs in South Wales. And uh, literally then I went into the music business as a pianist. And I was booked as a pianist on West Side Story. Uh, at the Haymarket Theatre in Leicester, and I was at the tender age of 21, and uh, literally with the, the show, I didn't think I could do it. I, for one thing, I didn't think I would be able to, to play such a complicated Bernstein score, and within uh, three months of the show running, and it went on tour, it was going to transfer to the West End, um, well, basically, they got rid of the assistant conductor, and he wasn't very popular, and the only other choice was this young boy on the piano which was a young Jay Alexander, and I was given the opportunity to, to conduct the show. And I thought, well, I've never conducted in my life before, but I'll have to learn. So I learned within a week to conduct West Side Story, and I did it that following Wednesday afternoon matinee, and then they said, the job's yours, and the show transferred to the West End. Now, that's not necessarily how it... I played the piano all my life, accompanied people, and then you'd say, yes, I learned how to do it like a like choreography. That's how I did it initially, was to conduct that show, which is a complicated dance show, loads of different tempo changes for very specific dances. So, in a way, I was chucked in at the deep end, but as all young are, you, you haven't got a care in the world, you just do it. You know, you grab the opportunity, seize it and do it. And I know people, you know, I get asked, what does a conductor do? <laughs> you know? But in fact, what I did on that occasion was to 
really, I worked out exactly. I knew the show backwards because I'd played every single note of it on the piano for all the rehearsal, the five-week rehearsal period. And um, But when it came into the West End, it was a whole different thing. You know, it's like, gosh, I'm suddenly in the West End. But uh, once you've conducted on the stick, yeah. then you never look back because people know, oh, yeah, he does that, he does that. Because some people can only do it from the piano. Jay, so what is a conductor? What, what, I mean, we see somebody standing there conducting. The people who are there who are all very good musicians in general. So what are you actually doing as an MD? Well, if, it, if, you, if you're watching a concert, if you're watching a musical in the West End, right, I do both worlds. So I can be um, conducting... Uh, if I'm in the pit of a West End theatre, well, I'm basically controlling every single song from the overture through all the tempo that decided by the conductor. The, way, the, t- the speed, the rate at which you lift your hand is the tempo of what you want the next piece of music to be, the next bar of music. And in some instances, there are, you know, 30 tempo changes in a dance number, and you have to know what those tempos are to give the right information to the people in the pit. Say you've got 28 musicians in the pit, and this is the main one. It's like traffic signals. How do you get 28 people to do the same thing at the same time? So that's what it is, really. You're making the tempo, you're doing the shape of the show, and that I'm communicating to the stage what the orchestra need to play. So I have to follow an actor who is singing, and, you know, that, that, the, the, between me, it's like a duet. I am the accompaniment to that person, but I've got to get everyone in the pit to feel how that person on stage, to feel through my body and my passion for the music. I mean, if you're doing a rock show, it's different, because the drummer, well, you might as well just have a drummer sometimes, but, you know, it's the different um, characters in the music that you want to bring out. And you actually ask musicians, I'd like this a little bit different to that. I'd like that a little bit sweeter sound. Can you make that a really hard note? Because what's happening on stage is quite ugly. And this is it's the same on the concert platform. Platform. If I'm conducting the proms, um, of which I do these outdoor uh, classical spectaculars around the country, Castle Howard, and I'm thinking about North Hillage, and Harewood House in Leeds and places. But there you've got massive orchestras of up to 70 people, and you've got to make your gestures a little bit bigger for that. In the pit, in a, in a, in a pit of a West End musical, your movements can be quite small, but when you're doing it on a massive scale, they've got to be bigger and grander. Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, Jay, uh, uh, for instance... I don't know, Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto. Surely, whoever conducts, it is a set piece. Or does a conductor have a different slant on something like that? Every conductor will have their own interpretation of something. And it's, it's, it's when you're doing the classics, if I'm doing, say, like a bit of Swan Lake or something, and there's, there's say, like, all the Sleeping Beauty waltz, well, different conductors will take a different tempo on something. They, and the, the, for instance, the ending of, of some one of those big waltzes, you can either go, yum, bum 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 or you can end it, yum, bum 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 So it ends completely differently, up to the, uh, that's up to the conductor. If you do something like the Blue Danube, which, oh, gosh, it's <laughs> so long, but don't know waltz, but it's one of those nightmare scenarios when I've got, if I'm doing a proms concert, I have a three-hour rehearsal, mm-hmm. I say on a Saturday afternoon, and in, a field or outside a stately home and three hour rehearsal to do three hours of music so really you haven't got much time to properly rehearse and so you go for a standard version of something if you're conducting the Halle for instance and you had weeks to rehearse then you can really nitpick and you know pull it around but 
Um, but some of the famous pieces, there are set ways of doing them, but you do need the conductor to control it all, you know. So that's how it, it happens. You're in charge there, and you can actually make them sound terrible. If you make a wrong move, hesitant, and some part of the orchestra saying, oh, no, we're just going to go on, and some follow you, you can be in trouble. I mean, some, <laughs> there are some bad conductors out there, I tell you now. Really? Because, yeah, because the directions are not good enough. It's like, you know, if somebody's going to say, tell someone to stop, Make sure you make sure it is a stop and not a, not a, a slight pathetic movement. Do you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> You've got to be demonstrative. Yeah, it's fascinating because I, I actually didn't think, this is how naive I am before I was in the business, I actually didn't think the musicians were looking at you. You were just standing there with a knitting needle having a ball. <laughs> Thank you. For all my years of training. Absolutely. <laughs> no, well, some people would say that. They, yeah. there's a, very, a friend of mine, um, a Win Evans, he's a wonderful tenor. I work with him every summer. And we have a good laugh on stage doing the actual proms, you know. And one, uh, he was one of the concerts this summer at Castle Howard, I think it was. And we suddenly got um, this. He said, well, some people think, they do ask, what does a conductor do? And they said, well, you know what? If you're not very good at playing a musical instrument like a violin or a cello or a trombone, they actually they take that instrument off you and they put you at the back of the orchestra and they give you two sticks and you start bashing some drums and percussion at the back there you see <laughs> and then if you're no good at that they take one of those sticks off you and they put you at the front to conduct the orchestra <laughs> <laughs> and that, that guy Win Evans you know Win Evans he, 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 <laughs> is the guy you know the go compare advert that's you, him. You've just spot my story, because I'm going to say, of all the name-dropping you did this weekend, <laughs> it was, go compare, go, go compare. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he's making an album, and I just, I'm, I'm not available to do it. He just asked me to conduct his album, and I can't do it. I'm out on tour, obviously, as you just said, with uh, Claire Sweeney doing Tell Me on a Sunday. And then I'm leaving to do at Sheffield. I'm doing Me and My Girl, a new relaunch of a new version of Me and My Girl at the Sheffield Crucible this Christmas, which is then transferring into the West End. Who's starring, who's starring in it this time? Well, there's, we've decided that a guy called Danny Crossley is going to be playing the male lead, and the female lead is Jemima Rupa. And also in the company, we have the fantastic Miriam Margulis, who is, I love Miriam Margulis. She's going to be playing the part of the Duchess, and we've got Patrick Reichart playing the part of Sir John. Yeah, fantastic. Now, go yeah. back to Go Compare. Tell yeah. me, how did it affect his career? I know he's made a lot of money, but how did it affect his career? Because he is a classical singer. He is, and he's, you know, he's principal tenor with Welsh National Opera and also guest with English National Opera. And he's sought after. He really is a very sought after tenor. He's wonderful. I mean, I, he literally does look like that. And when I introduce him, I always say, Win Evans, um, you know, welcome to the stage. What I actually think is Pavarotti's love child. <laughs> that's what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's not a fact suit, by the way. That is him. All right. <laughs> I did say to him this time, I said, come on, take the comedy stomach off now, we've seen it, come on. I've never known, I've never known a conductor with a sense of humour, this is completely new to me. <laughs> well, that's what Charlotte yeah. said to me years ago, there's another one, I conducted Charlotte when she was 11 years old, she came on to a, a TV programme I was doing in Welsh language on S4C, and... Um, 
Then she then went on to do a lot of other things, and I conducted it in, in a proms concert. And she went, oh, I love you. You're so much better than all the stuffy conductors I have to work with. I'm quite <laughs> right. Jay, uh, let's get back to something really serious. Um, I'm talking to Jay Alexander, who is uh, an MD and uh, works in the West End, is on tour now with Petula uh, Clark. Oh, my oh, word, I've just, aged, I've just aged her with Claire Sweeney. But you started off in the clubs. I think one of the tragic things, as you know, the industry is, is in the doldrums right now. And the first thing that goes in the clubs are the musicians. And I an know. awful lot of musicians have gone. And really, they are the backbone of the club. Well, do you know what? When I've seen, because I, when I go and visit my family down in South Wales, uh, I go to the club with my mum, you know, and go over there. And of course, everything's on backing track. And basically, they now, a lot of people are uh, karaoke singers. And, but everyone sings the same version of a Whitney Houston song. Everyone sings the same version of a Tom Jones song. Whereas when I was doing it, you know, then, everyone would have their own version of something. Whatever it was, it was their version in their key, their arrangement. And you either had a good chart or, you know, really shoddy charts. But then the, the talent then was sight-reading, you know. It, they were, it was great for me to learn. And I was a church organist from the age of, of 11, and um, the best sight-reading exercises you can ever have are hymns, because hymns are four-part perfect harmony. And then when I started doing the clubs when I was 14, 15, 16, back in cabaret and all that, um, it was great because I could just sight-read anything. People put the music in front of you and say, oh, it's a good chart, right, OK, and then you'd be known um, in the area as top, you were like top back in, mate, you know. That's <laughs> it's amazing. I loved amazing. it, but it, and it's a shame that the demise of that, and you go and you just hear someone doing, you know, Robbie Williams' number exactly, because he's got, he's got the track. I mean, it's all well and good, and people want to get up and dance, but I think the artistry of that has sort of gone quite a lot, you know. And an awful lot of musicians out of work because of it. I know, I know. Well, we did get scared years ago by the fact that there was a thing here, I remember called the string machine came in and imagine all the violins were being replaced by this thing and oh gosh and synthesizers when I was doing West Side Story in 1983-84 at Her Majesty's Theatre in London um, I had a real upright piano and a real Celeste mm -hmm. at the side of me I mean I was cramped in there in the pit but we didn't have the synthesizer had just started to emerge but the conductor Grant Hossack um, he was having none of it and I said but if I had that I could play the Celeste on there. He said, I'm not, I'm having a real Celeste. Because now all we have keyboards galore now, that's yeah. it, because they, they're so clever now, yeah. and we can do anything. In fact, I'm playing keyboards on Terminal Sunday, and I play piano, electric piano, harp, cello. I play loads of different sounds. Although we have uh, uh, more musicians than that in the show, we have five of us playing. We have saxophone and flute and, and a real cello and drums, percussion, you know, and bass. It sounds great. But the keyboards, we were scared of that years ago. Yeah. I think the but, sound, the sound you do and that comes out especially with that cello is the most unique sound that's been put together for tell me on a sunday oh it really is they worked so hard at doing that you know Pete, because that it was hard because we sounded like a little chamber band when we started mm -hmm. and then by the time they they make the the, the the they take the sound and they put an effect on everything they warmed us all up with a, a, a an individual reverb for every song, and then certain parts of the song, you get it. It's as if you're in like a wonderful world because because the show Tell Me on Sunday is partly concert in a way in its elements, you know. Because originally was done like that, but this new production, uh, Claire Sweeney is doing everything. We've got a full-on set. She's got a bedroom. She's got a kitchen, you know, and a lounge. And so it's it's very big. And this world that we create, the audience are swept away. And people say, you know, because some theatres we go to, the band are on stage. 
and you can see us. And other theatres we go to, you can't see us. And we're behind, and people think it's a recording. And they say, well, it's too good. It sounds too good. It can't possibly be real, <laughs> which I love. That's good. Um, we've seen another change, Jay, in the, in the industry, because once upon a time, if you wanted to see a major show, you had to go to the West End. But so many theatres, like the Empire in Liverpool, have been rebuilt and have got stages that sometimes are bigger than the West End. So there is a lot of regional tours now from London, which is great and, and gives work to the musicians. But what is the West End like these days? Is it still doing well? Well, the West End is really, really healthy, and it just goes to show you can have a show on in the West End, and you can tour it. Claire and I, some years ago, we did in the West End together. We did Guys and Dolls, and we actually had that show playing on the road. It went on tour as well as in the West End at the same time, and that's happening a lot because I think now in the regions, the producers have realised that they know eventually that they're not going to come to the West End because they think, oh, I've got to pay for a hotel, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and pay all the extra money or the travel down. And that show's going to come to us eventually. So they're realising that they can fill these wonderful regional houses, like the Liverpool Empire, wonderful theatre, that they'll go there and they will get it, you know, the same show at um, a reduced price from what the West End, because obviously the West End rates are higher. And they know that they're packing out the regions. I know at the moment Hairspray's on tour, isn't it? And yeah. some of the big shows direct out of the West End, Sound of Music, you know, so a great night can be had. But it's still, there is nothing better than going to the West End because it is, wow, I love it. Well, it's part of it, isn't it? It's part of the fun of going past all the theatres. The other thing is, what people do not understand, and once upon a time, years ago, a show that was put on cost a lot of money, but now it is vast amounts of money. Let me take, for example, Love Never Dies. Nobody can imagine the amount of money that must have cost, can they? I know. It's inc- do you know what? It really is incredible. And I was, you know, so, well, actually, the show, when I did uh, Guys and Dolls in the West End, it had a very small budget because it was a Donmar Warehouse production, Donmar in the West End, and the budget was like three and a half million, right? Now, that might sound like a lot of money, but some years ago, I did Disney's Beauty and the Beast at the, the Dominion Theatre, and our costume budget was four million. Wow. And that's just the costume. The whole budget was twelve and a half million and it went over to thirteen and a half million. It went over budget by one million. Yeah. Wow. I mean it's just unbelievable. And you know, it people don't realise how much money goes into these things because they don't just you have a stage, but sometimes they excavate the stage, take it all away, to put hydraulic lifts in and actually Sister Act, which is at the Palladium at the moment, I mean, that set design for that is amazing. Really yeah, I, I went to see the other week with uh, Whoopi in it, and it, it was an incredible thing. Is there, as an MD, is there yeah. anything that's put before you musically and you go, this is the music I've been dreading, this I am terrified of playing, this, not just you, but all the musicians, is there anything like that out there? Definitely. There's always a challenge in... Uh, not, not, uh, yeah, I mean, there are certain pieces of music... Um, over the years, especially for me on the classical side of things, you know, because I don't have enough time to rehearse these things sometimes. You think, oh my God, this is a tall order. And, you know, it's like with all sorts of work, if you don't have enough time to get ready for it or every bus comes at once, suddenly there's so much work happening. But we've all got a piece of music. And, and in fact, one of mine was, was the Blue Danube years ago. I thought, because there are so many different ways to do it, and I thought, I haven't got time to rehearse it, uh, to do it properly, to do it justice on the day. But I've, I've got over that fear of doing that now. I said, oh, yeah, no, I'll do the Blue Danube. That's fine. But we've all got within a show, even within Tell Me On A Sunday, I've got a moment in the show where I go, oh, God, this is so hard. And it's so exposed, you know. And I think a lot of it was written for bigger hands than mine. (laughs) 
wow. Now, you've got a show on tour yourself, haven't you? That's yours. Yeah, I do. I've got a group of singers called the West Enders. And the West Enders have been together for 10 years now. And they've done a show called The Best Musicals, which went around for some years. And now we've got a new show called West End Goes Ballroom, which combines like two worlds one night. So you've got um, your best, obviously, the lovely musical theatre night you'll get. But within that, you get pockets of dance. So we'll have pockets of, we'll have like when we do Evita, we'll have the samba. So when you've got like, what's new? Buenos Aires and all that. We've got a, um, a Latin American dance couple champions doing a wonderful samba to that. And then we've got like we do the Moulin Rouge tango and various things. The quick step we'll do to um, Honey Bun done Diamonds are a girl's best friend. So it's it's a, it's a great idea. Originally though, I said Peter, we were actually called Strictly. Strictly West End, and we got stopped from using the word strictly because the BBC is so really? in the air. So now it's called West End Goes Ballroom, playing at a theatre near you at some now, point. Now tell me, Jay, bef- uh, we've got to ask, top five people you've worked with apart from Claire? Forget Claire. Top, <laughs> top five. Top five. Oh, I'm, you know what? They're such gorgeous people. So apart from Claire, I'm not allowed to say Claire, thank you. Um, well, I've worked with uh, Eartha Kitt for eight months. And uh, on the musical Follies, and in that show as well was Diana Rigg, who I loved, Dame Diana, which is, um, I had a gorgeous time with her and that, and I've worked with her a few times. And Julie McKenzie, uh, gosh, that's three, they're all women so far. <laughs> um, I'm just starting to think, oh, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, and Patrick Swayze. Oh, right. of course, people. Patrick. And, uh, yeah, with, yeah, with the Garden Doors Claire did. Yeah. She played opposite him every night, you know, and I got to conduct him. Yeah. And uh, various people come into that show. Jane Krakowski. I mean, of course, you and your name drop it. I'm getting through your book, dear. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you started reading it. Oh, yeah. Good, good. I thought, yeah, I thought, well, after spending time with you, name-dropping, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Russ <laughs> Abbott, you did, was it two yeah. years at the Palladium with him? Yeah, well, I did Oliver at the Palladium, and we opened with um, Jonathan Price, played Fagin originally, and then we had a series of different Fagins, and Russ was amazing. He came in and just, again, did his own version of the show, you know, and... Uh, Give it, us it, an it, example of that, because that was very funny what you told me. Well, Russ tried, he tried it with me in the dressing room. Oh, dressing room, dressing room, in the rehearsal room. Oh, God. <laughs> in no, tried, he had this routine. You know, you have this character called Jimmy. Yes. Right. Hey, so Jimmy, Jimmy, you were going to be that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's the one. Yeah. That's the one. So he's doing that. And he's trying it in the rehearsal room with me. And he said, What do you think about this, Jay? I'm thinking, you know, um, doing a song and in the middle of the song called Reviewing the Situation. So he details the story, you know, and a villain be a villain all his life. Da 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 da. I'm reviewing this. So he's gone, then suddenly he goes into the Jimmy character in the middle of it, stops the whole thing. And, and he recalls the entire story of when Oliver meets the Arthur Dodger. And Oliver says, oh, 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 And he's been with Nancy and Bill, he goes the whole thing through, and it goes on for about three, four minutes, which is a long time. And then he's, and the audience are laughing their heads off, and then he stops, and they give him a round of applause, and he goes, I'm reviewing the situation. <laughs> <laughs> it was just Russ and his genius, I don't think, you know. And that was his take on it, you know. We had different people doing it, but that reviewing, to me, that was yeah. classic. I think that's what Cameron McIntosh loved about when you've got different people yeah. coming in, they are playing that part, they bring something so different to it. Now, Eartha Kitt was at the uh, Everyman Theatre many years ago, and I was very fortunate to interview her. I was scared of her, but I was very fortunate to interview oh. her. She had two prompts... At either side of the stage, but you apparently had to mouth the words for I, her. I did. 
I did. I don't know the words. I mean, uh, she sang a song called I'm Still Here. And originally I'd done it with um, uh, Dolores Gray. I'd played the part before, and Eartha took over from Dolores Gray, the Hollywood movie star. And the difference of how they did it, I was thinking, how do I mind these words? Not like, give them to Eartha Kitt. I mean, she's up there in a gorgeous 12,000-pound frock, beaded gown, and looking at a million dollars. And there's me in the pit having to go, good times and bum times, I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. While she's singing it in a fashion which I'm going to try and think in her way as to how she would phrase it. But the Dolores Gray sang it something like... Um, uh, good times and bum times. I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. And Eartha Kitt was like completely opposite, which was like good times and bum times. I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to think in her head, mime the words through. I think she said, if I don't, she might lose herself. If I, if I, every night I was terrified of Miss Kitt. But I'll tell you one fabulous thing she did for me, though. Before the days of mobile telephones, we used to have on every staircase, on um, every landing on the dressing rooms backstage at the Shaftesbury Theatre, there'd be a telephone box. And you'd queue for it sometimes, you know, because the dancers would be on it talking to their partners, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, or families. And I thought, it was my dad's birthday, I've got to ring him. And my dressing room was opposite Earth's, and I was saying, Dad, happy birthday, what are you doing tonight? Oh, going to have the club boy, you know, um, going to have a couple of pints over there. And uh, I said, hang on a second. So I went to Earth's dressing room, and um, I said, Earth, will you just come and say happy birthday to my dad? And she went, of course I will. So she came to the telephone, came out of her dressing room in her, in her dressing gown, and she went, hello, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, <laughs> happy birthday. She went, what's his name? I said, Alan, Alan, wow, happy birthday to you. <laughs> My dad, that was the best, best birthday. He went over, I mean, really, that night, he just, that was an amazing thing for her Can to imagine do. imagine him at the working men's club? No, I don't believe him. I know, because, I mean, she was, she literally was the, the most terrifying of yeah. people sometimes, you know. I know. But, of course, the siren, yeah. she was a wonderful, sexy siren. What a woman. Jay. What a life she had. And Absolutely. I, just to be part of that little, yeah. you know. And funny enough, someone found on YouTube for me the other day, I played the piano for Eartha on a t- t- television program. And I never had it videoed. I, you know, did, you're doing so many things at the time. But I played the piano for her on a program uh, for Old Fashioned Girl. And these youngsters were all in the audience who were absolutely mesmerized by her. She'd been brought over. I was doing a charity gig with her in Brighton. And so we wanted to get some publicity for the show. And so she was just there on the... P- I was on the, on the grand piano. And she was like, with these kids, loving it. You know, I'm just an old-fashioned girl with an old... An old fashion millionaire and they were lapping it up you know you can't she was an absolute an utter just genius she was just on her own you know completely extraordinary woman jay is there an age limit to an md oh i hope not (laughs) 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 well i'm 49 now and 50 next year and uh, you know yes the, the sort of in the West End, you do think, oh, they, they're all getting a lot younger. But then I know that I got all my best jobs when I'm between 30 and 40. I'd, you know, in the West End, Crazy For You, um, which was a massive big hit. Then Oliver I did for a few years. Then I did Beauty and the Beast for three years. So they were all in the 90s. And, you know, and then you do show you periodically you know, that you get a, a spell. Like, any, you know, if you're in this business there are going to be peaks and troughs. And I've had lots of troughs and I've had lots of peaks. And I just hope the peaks keep happening and not so many troughs. What was your happiest show ever? Oh, 
They're so crazy for you. I was playing it in the car the other day at Gershwin. Crazy for you, fantastic. I've got so many of those follies, which I loved, because they happen at a certain moment in your life. When I was younger, I was thrilled we'd do the Rocky Horror Show and Grease and things like that, you know. And I just, and, and guys and dolls, what a ball that was. You know, what a great band, orchestra lineup. In fact, our lead trumpet on that was the amazing Derek Watkins. Now, Derek Watkins, lead trumpet on that, but he is actually the trumpet player on every single James Bond movie. Oh, wow. He's the only person that's ever played that phrase. Da 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 da. He's the only person. And, you know, Barbara Broccoli, uh, when they did the last movie, she thanked him for all, I think it's 25 movies. Oh, I'm saying something wrong there. But, and the only person who's played in every single movie, Derek Watkins. And he was our lead trumpet player. The standard of playing in West yeah. End orchestra pits is amazing because you get people who used to do, because the session work is dried up, Peter. That's something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It has the session of work. Of course, that that was, people, that's explained to people what session work is, because people don't know a lot of people. Well, recording sessions, you get the top players, and they go in. It can go from as small as a jingle, which is an advert, or something, to as big as a movie, where you've got a big orchestra. Say, you know, these guys have all played on Star Wars, and where things are big, that's what session work is. But a lot of the work is dried up, and a lot of people are going out of this country, which is really annoying, and they're going to Eastern Europe to use orchestras because they're cheaper. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's it's a downright disgrace on, on the record companies who are still making an absolute fortune. And the singers, you know, because I've just heard of, um, a Welsh girl, funny enough, who's just gone out to Lithuania and made an album. Wow. It's interesting. <laughs> you know, why? Because so, our orchestras are expensive. No, because we're talented. That's interesting you say that. So, like um, manufacturing, it's going abroad because it's cheaper. So, musicians are going abroad. It's, it's or oh, they're doing well, recordings. They, the musicians are not going abroad. No, they're using yeah, the musicians out yeah. there. And, you know, their standard of playing is not like ours. Yeah. I remember I conducted Sarah Brightman in Istanbul. And I had the Istanbul St a State Symphony Orchestra. Now, she rang me up and she said, Jane, now don't be alarmed. It's not like London musicians. It, they won't play it straight the first time. People don't understand. In this country, we can play... If you put music in front of our musicians here, they're so talented. They can play it. They can sight-read it all together. And it's there, I say, well, okay, that's good. Now let's just, you know, tighten it up a little bit. I want this expression there, I want that expression there, I want this bigger, I want that slower. Well, I was, she said, it'll take three or four times. I said, you're kidding me. No, 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 three or four times. Well, even simple things that she was singing, like um, wishing you were somehow here again from Phantom of the Opera. It's only in 4-4, four, 4-4 four, four, four time. And, I mean, third, third time through, it started to sound like the real thing. I'm going, oh, my goodness. She's right. I couldn't believe it. Then they've got it, you know. But, oh, the language barrier as well. It's, you know, it's very, very difficult. The only word they used and I loved was maestro. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Alexander, I could talk to you all night. I think oh, you're a likewise. fascinating man. Uh, you've got to finish off, please, with the story about the uh, person that um, took over the part and had a problem about their height with Eartha Kitt. Oh, I can't. We don't have to mention names. Just Oh, well, I will, I will, I will, I will. I have to. Well, yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's a lovely story. Eartha was having, and she'd had a little bit of a, an upset in her life when we were doing Follies at the Shaftesbury. It was back in 1988, so a long forgotten, but I distinctly remember this night. And um, the understudy was on for one of the lead roles, and um, she was a little short. And she was very, um, you know, when you're really short, you, you've got a little bit of thing about your height sometimes, you know. And anyway, the character's name was um, Carlotta. And so she'd go, the line was, oh, Carlotta, how gorgeous to see you. And she went, hello, midget. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's a lovely actress. And I'm going, did you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, midget. Instead of, hi, Carlotta, how are you? It's like, it's a kid at her worst. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a bit of brandy had something to do with it. Jay Alexander, <laughs> I know. Tell me on a Sunday is coming to Liverpool. Finally, it's coming to Southport, and as fingers crossed, it might appear in Liverpool next year. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's a great show, isn't it? It's in Southport in a few matter of weeks, and it's a fantastic version of it. And I tell you what, it's now called the definitive version. They've rewritten it and rewritten it, and now this version, and it's been specifically a new song written for Claire Sweeney. It's just amazing. She is brilliant. She's a tour de force. Everywhere we're going around the country, she's getting great reviews, you know, and it is, it's coming to Southport, and I, you know, come and see it. I know you will be there. Yeah, I mean, you've seen it, you've seen it already, but you're going to come again. J. Alexander spelled J-A-E. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> You're welcome. The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about the X Factor and we are now... Well, I want to talk about the reason because, in my opinion, they were robbed without any shadow of fact. And I wanted to find and try and track one of them down. We've done that. Will you believe... Girls, close your eyes and think about this. He's sweaty... He's in a pair of shorts, he's got armbands on, he's in the gym, he's there with the weights. He needs scrubbing down, girls. It's Mark from The Reason. Hello, Mark. Hello, mate. How you doing? You all right? <laughs> I am indeed. So I'm sorry we've disturbed you in the gym. Hey, no worries, no worries, mate. It's a pleasure. Mark, I'm going to be honest, I really do think you were robbed. And, and I'm very, very surprised The Reason didn't get away from boot camp. I really thought you had... Everything that is wanted in pop stars these days. You must have been surprised. The lads must have been surprised. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you know what, mate? Thank you so much. That's, that's a real compliment coming from you. And, um, yeah, I, I think we were genuinely, genuinely shocked, to be fair. I mean, we thought that maybe we had a little bit different, maybe something a bit real, a bit likeable. Um, but you never know. You know, the, you know, the X Factor is a show, and they decided to cut, cut the groups together, and then they went with them, didn't they, in the end? So, um yeah, it was a bit gut-wrenching uh, when we found out we weren't going through to a lot of shows. Mark, um, give us a little yeah. bit of history of the group. Tell us how you formed, because you look like really good pals. Yeah, we are, mate. We're, we're genuine friends. We're all from Southampton. Um, we've been friends for about 12 years now. Uh, we used to sing together like, like, around pubs and clubs and then uh, went in for the first series of X Factor, um, reached boot camp, so that was seven years ago. But we were a bit young, a bit naive, weren't ready then. Um, and in January of this year, I decided to phone the lads back up. Uh, we we socialised anyway as friends, and so and we used to always sort of talk about singing. Um, but then I decided to phone them up and say, lads, do you want to get together? See if we can get the harmonies right, um, and then give it a crack. And that, that's that's the long and short of it, really. Let's talk about the first time. Were you the reason in those days? No, back in the, back. Oh God, seven years ago, we were called So Unique. Um, right. Because obviously the first three letters S O U uh, represent Southampton, where we're all from. Um, but the style of music that we were doing back then was a bit, I guess it was a bit more like the uh, Blazing Squad type thing, you know, with singing and MCing. So it was yeah. very different back then, very different. And when you didn't get through there, how did you feel, and uh, all of you? Can you remember the feelings? Oh, what back then? Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, back then I actually thought that um, we all sort of felt we were hanging on in there. If you know what I mean, like we didn't deserve to be there. Right. Um, we weren't we weren't quite ready. A uh, bit naive, bit young. Um, and yeah, to be honest with you, back then I thought like, we all felt we were going to go. Um, that was the difference. Like this time around, we actually felt that we were going to get onto the live shows, and that was the, that was the hardest thing to accept. Mm. 
If you just joined us, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Mark from The Reason. They were the big, butch, honky, chunky <laughs> guys that women on my programme went, oh, my... Well, there's not one I'd kick out of bed. <laughs> Simple as that. Now, talk us through the audition process. When you first went, talk us through what happened. You got together, you did your rehearsals, and then you went along. What happened? Yeah, well, you go through a few... Uh, uh like producer rounds there um, at the X Factor. So you, we got together, um, got the harmonies uh, like tight, nice and tight, um, dressed up as we would, as if we were just going out really, like T-shirts and jeans, went to the audition. Um, and then obviously when we got to actually sing in front of the three judges, we didn't know there was going to be a crowd of 3,000 there. So that was a bit, that comes a bit of a shock to be honest. <laughs> um, so we were really nervous, like sweaty palms and mouths went all dry and things like that. Um, but yeah, we went out there and, um, well, a little story before, before we were about to go on stage, me and Glenn had to run off to the toilet, um, and we weren't supposed to, and then we had to run all the way around the arena to get back. So by the time we were going to go on stage, me and Glenn were like sweating, to be honest. Um, but no, it, it, it come good. It come together. We went on stage, a little bit nervous. Um, and I thought we, thought the first edition went really well. Tell us what happens in between when you walk on. Is there just a blank spot or do they just have the warm up comic on in between the acts? No, it's just literally it's act one act on, one act off. So right. somebody go on before you, sing, sing what they got to do. Um, it's it's hard because some you know you see people that you think wow they sounded great and then they get a no from all the judges and they come off and it's, so you think God, you know God if they got a no then you know how is it going to you know are we going to be get a no as well? So you never know what to expect. But no, there's no comic on. It's just literally one act followed by another act. Now what happens when you come off? You found out you're going through to boot camp. Tell us what the next stage is. Yeah, we found out we're going through the boot camp, and then um, so you do a week week long of boot camp where you have to do like the they, they say they give you vocal coaching, but really like it's a few little bits. It's nothing like exceptional. Like we we arrange our harmonies ourselves, and then they basically just make sure that you're doing warm up exercises so you don't strain your voice and things like that. Um, obviously, you guys saw we've done like dance routines, which me and the lads have never done before, and we really <laughs> that was our, like, that was the highlight of our week to be honest. We struggled like hell to be honest in the dancing. Um, but yeah, no, that's it. You go through the week at boot camp. Um, you do two performances. Um, we do the Starship song, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, and then we had to do our song, Lady, uh, by you know the Lady Gaga one that we did, Bad Romance. And then you, you know, you're there a week, so, and there's no feedback, so you, you, you're like an emotional wreck, to be honest. You don't know whether you're coming or going. That's um, a big. That's a big thing about the programme, isn't it? Though it's all those pregnant pauses. Now, many years ago, when you were a little boy, I was on a talent show called New Faces as a stand-up comic, and I yeah. know, I know that feeling you have, and nobody <laughs> will ever, ever know it unless they've been through it, will they? No, they won't. No, I mean, it's uh, God. You really don't know whether you're coming or going, and and it's no. I used to sit there watching it, the X Factor, and. You see people crying at boot camp. You think, you know, what are they, what are they crying for? You know, grow up, sort of thing. You know, things like that. You know, but then when you're there, you, I, I thought to myself, God, now I know why they're crying because you, you seriously don't know, you know, what they're thinking of you. You know, and, but they, you know, do it. I think they do that on purpose to get the get the response oh, that they absolutely. need to television. Absolutely, you know? that's that's good television. Now, tell me, did you socialise when you were at boot camp, or was it all work? No, you you allowed to, a lot of the time. Obviously, you, to be honest with you, most of the time you're waiting around. You, you, you're waiting in, in like we used to call it the pig pen, um, where you'd be waiting in a room with other contestants, like the other guys in the groups and stuff, and then you'd be waiting there for about you know ten hours before you even done anything. So, mm. 
Yeah, we socialised a hell of a lot, you know, and got to know um, um, a few acts that we really clicked with, like Marlon McKenzie we really got on well with. Uh, he didn't make. He, ma he reached the houses, didn't make the live shows. Yeah. Uh, Tracy Cohen, who got a call back to the live shows, she's a lovely girl. Yeah. Um, obviously, we know the groups. Uh, well, I say we know the groups. Two of them were formed, so we don't know them very well. But yeah. <laughs> um, Fyd, we got to know pretty well. Um, they've they went in at the weekend. Um, yeah, which I was surprised about. Now let, let's just stay with you for a minute, because we then we 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 see you arriving. Did you honestly and truthfully think you were through? Did you feel? We've, we've nailed this. I've got to be honest, yeah, I, did, I think we did. I think, you know, um, but the thing is that they, the, song, the two songs that we had to sing, we sung uh, uh, Daniel Benefield, If You're Not The One, and they sort of made us strip our harmonies back, you know, because we obviously were, was like a harmony group. And we thought, oh, this, you know, this could be, this could be like um, a bad thing because they're taking away a part of the element that makes us, you know, us. Yeah. Um, so we did that, but I think we sung the song really well and they... they they said to try and deliver the emotion of the song because, um, you know, everyone knew that we could harmonise, etc. So we went there and did the job that we, you know, that we were supposed to do. And I genuinely think that we did think we were going through. Um, if, if you'd have asked the other acts there, I think most of the other acts in, yeah. in, in the final eight would have said, yeah, the reason would be in their top three, you know. So I think we were, we were confident, but quietly confident because we thought you, we, anything can happen in this show. Especially, if, you know, when they put the two groups together, we thought, well, they put them together for a reason, you know. And, uh, Mr. Simon Cow, you know, he's a bit of a genius. He's put together the, the, the young lads. Who, yeah. Justin, Justin Bieber's huge at the moment, and he's put five young lads together, and it's, it's working. So, yeah, credit to him. But, you know, I, I thought, unfortunately, it was at, at our expense. How did you feel when he said, I'm sorry you're not through? Uh, it was, to be honest with you, he went, I'm sorry, lads. And yeah. we were waiting for him to say, yeah. you've got to go for yeah. it all again, you know. You've got to yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we sort of stood there for a while thinking... And, and, you know, and it, the, the and never come. It was just, yeah, I'm sorry, lads, but you're going home, you know. Just, just you know, as you can imagine, I mean, I'm the unemployed one of the group, so it's back to the, the job centre, you know. But Mark, what happens when he said you're not through? What actually happens to you as a group then? Well, you, 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 you come, well, you come and shift your hands and said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, etc. And then you, you walk off and then you get interviewed by Dermot and Connie and stuff and then... That's it, really. They put you in a room, um, so obviously the other acts don't know that you're yeah. don't know that you're through, or they can't. They, know, they don't know if you're through or not. Um, and then literally at the end of it, they, you know, that's it, really. <laughs> I mean, you, you can hear the screams of people that are going through, and then you can hear yeah. nothing, and people don't go through. So yeah, it's really uh, it's really strange, you know. Once you once you're out, that's it. You know, back to the hotel, and then to, back to the airport the next day, and that's it. The, the, the ex factor bubbles burst, so to speak. Now, how did you feel when it started um, the, the show and you saw it and think, I should be on there? Or can you not bear to watch it? Um, I, didn't, I didn't watch it this weekend, um, but we, we had a gig. But, you know, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, um, yeah, I've, I've seen bits back and Nathan's actually doing like um, a little blog for us because Nathan's sitting through it and watching it every week um, for the band. But no, I mean, I do think that we deserve to be there, you know, genuinely because we, we're real. We're what the X Factor should be about, you know. Gen like real people entering the talent competition, you know, and just giving it a go. And I, I really think that we were robbed, yeah, like you said. Yeah. Well, you, 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 I mean, let's be honest, Mark. You're, you're, you're talking to um, a, a Liverpool uh, person. <laughs> it's a Liverpool station, that you know, and we, we have no qualms about it. How dare that Wagner get through 
I mean, an Indian chief, I mean, it makes a mockery of the whole industry. Exactly, well, precisely. I mean, you know, the, there's this whole wild card thing, you know, and everybody thought we were going to be the wild card in the groups category. Um, and it, obviously they put they called back Beaver Fever. And all I'm going to say on the matter is, you know, that just goes to show what the show's all about, doesn't it? Absolutely. So what's going to happen to the reason? Because the reason aren't... I mean, don't forget, some groups actually do survive. Some groups laugh about it, that they've been turned down by the X Factor and can survive. I think you've got an incredible future if you've got good management. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, we have got management now. Um, we're starting to upside. Um, and we're just literally pursuing the career. We're in the studio recording new songs. Um, and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get a record deal, basically, and we're gigging up and down the country. Hopefully, we'll be coming to Liverpool soon, because I've never been, so it'll be a great experience. Um, yeah, we're just, we're going to pursue it. We're literally going to give everything we've got. It's one yeah. last shot for us all, and, and, you know, hopefully someone will believe in us and give us that opportunity to to um, record music, and, and hopefully we'll do well. Well, Mark, um, I'm really delighted we found you in the gym. Can I say, if you're coming up this way... You've got our number. I really would love you to bring the lads in because this radio station is the biggest local radio station in the country and we're so proud that we've spoken to you today because I genuinely, hand on my heart, thought the reason would have got through and I thought you had a very good chance of being in the top five. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real, real um, uh, lovely comment. And I just think, yeah, I mean, we'd love to come in, to be honest. If we're ever in Liverpool, I'll give you yeah. a call. All right. We'll come and have an interview face-to-face. It'd be great to meet you. Great. You take care, Mark. Thank you very much. Take care. The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7.